The following episode of the Nick podcast contains explicit language and spoilers. We highly recommend you watch the corresponding episode before listening. Hey everyone, welcome to this installment of the Nick Podcast. I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. And we are the writers and co-creators of the series. Each week we bring you in in-depth discussions on the latest episodes, take you behind the scenes with various cast and crew, giving you the fans the inside scoop on what it takes to put together our show. This week we will be discussing episode 6 entitled, There Are Rules. And we are very fortunate to have on the podcast with us Howard Cummings, the production designer and two-time Emmy winner, one for this show. That surgical theater, the ward, Huber's Palace, the docks, that is all the masterful work of Howard. But before we bring on Howard, I just want to briefly touch on some of the highlights of the episode. One place I just said was uh, Huber's Palace, uh, where Thackeray watches a hypnosis show, and which was very much in vogue at the time, I believe. Yeah, hypnotism was this sort of new magical thing. But the idea of hypnotism was actually something that had been coined much, much earlier. And it actually been coined uh, by a, an Englishman named James Braid, who was a scientist in 1843. And the reason he, he named it that was actually for the god uh, of sleep, uh, the Greek god of sleep, which was Hypnos. But the first person to sort of become famous for it was a guy named Franz Mesmer. And he was an Austrian physician and literally he didn't he he discovered it by accident which i thought was so cool is that is that he actually believed in something called animal magnetism which is this idea that the planets gave out these magnetic rays and all this crazy stuff but that what was part of it was this idea that he would talk to his patients while also putting metal on their bodies and all these other weird things but at at a certain point it entranced his patients and his first his first success was a woman who had all these pains and aches and, and problems and ear infections and all these things. And he basically turned to her and said, I want you to imagine that all the, all the liquid is draining from your body. And then I want your, you to believe that your sickness is draining with it. And the woman was healed and he became sort of a celebrated guy, but he was also seen by a lot of people as a charlatan. And as a result, he became very, very famous and he would go and perform and do all these things for the, you know, empress of Austria and all these other people. But in the end, he actually ended up disgraced because people just believed he was a fake. Archie, when you wake, there will be a kitten in front of you. There is nothing more frightening in this world than this creature. You want nothing to do with it. Well, all I know is that the prop that they had in that scene of that eye, I so wanted to steal that and bring it home. But it, it turned out it actually belonged to Dr. Burns. Really? Uh, our, our medical uh, advisor, yes. It was, See, it creeped me out. I would never want oh it. Oh, my God. I so, I so wanted that as my souvenir for the season. This episode also, uh, we see Garrison Carr come into the – get a tour of the hospital and – he says that he needs surgery, and Algernon comes up with the the idea of doing it at the Nick. And this was gonna, this is going to be a big deal. This is a black surgeon performing surgery on a black patient, which was had never been done before. And we really uh, wanted to base Carr's character on W. E. B. Du Bois. Yeah, Du Bois is a fascinating figure. He was 
He was the first uh, African-American to earn a Ph.D. at Harvard. He was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. He he studied in Europe. He, he, he taught uh, around the country, taught in Atlanta. He taught everywhere. And he really became an activist after he sort of had this academic career. And his activism was very interesting because what it did was instead of the old version of, hey, everybody, you know, let's just be perfect. Basically what Algernon was in season one, which is I'm going to be the the perfect version and I'm going to show my merit and then everybody's just going to see I have value and I'm they're going to let me in the doors. And what Du Bois basically said was that's the old way of doing things. And that's not going to work anymore. We have to bang down the doors. We can't wait for them to give us what we think we deserve. We have to go out and get what we deserve. And Du Bois was a fascinating character. And I, I really, I really recommend everybody Google him because he's such an important character. And what's interesting is uh, Carr has that great speech in the previous episode, Stephen Katz's episode. And Katz wrote part of that speech. And then Soderbergh, which is very, very rare for him, took a crack at it because Stephen had been reading a lot of actually James Baldwin. And so a lot of what's coming out of Carr is coming out of these extraordinary African-American thinkers of, you know, of the last century. And uh, as a result, I, you know, we hope we do justice to sort of this battle. When a man's words or laws don't matter, forget about justice, because people don't even know where to look to for justice. So does it matter what a man says? Yes! The story of the Negro in America is the story of America. I think... There's so much tension in the season that we're getting out of this idea of we're not going to wait and 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 having to push through those doors because everybody else is saying it's too soon or this doesn't fit our model of what we think you should be. So please, everyone, go get your Du Bois on. Lastly, the last thing to touch on from the episode is we see Bertie uh, at Mount Sinai in the night with Algernon performing the surgery uh, the experimental surgery on his mother. And this was another one of those great surgical scenes, and it was another one that was based on uh, r- real research that we we uncovered, this actual surgery using the, the mercury. To the, yeah, so it was liquid. So what, you'll see, what you guys probably remember is we, you saw that tumor. I'm sure you couldn't forget it. And that Bertie is injecting sort of a liquid metal into uh, into the tumor. And there was a surgery that basically... Um, you would take uh, liquid zinc and mercury, inject into the tumor, and then you would electrify it with gold-tipped electrodes. And it was supposed to sort of shrink and soften and basically kill the tumorous tissue. It was also done with uh, little needles that were made out of zinc and iron, too. You could in- insert them. But those mercury balls, when they, when, when they showed up on, on the screen, were, it, it's, so, it's, so, it's such an incredible effect. It, it was another one of those... Um, one of the one of the, one of the tougher surgeries, I think, because it was the throat. There's something about doing surgery on the throat that really just sort of gets me. But this also tells us, shows us that so many of the new procedures, whether they were right-headed or wrong-headed, really relied on electricity. And this was a theme that we started in season one, which is that electricity still is the newfangled thing. It's still the new, 
you know, it's still the new the new technology. And as a result, they're using it for everything. They're using it for mood alteration. They're using it for uh, – in season one, we used it to um, – clot the aortic aneurysm and make it harden. Well, in um, episode five, he, he's using this rod inside Carton's brain to find the spots that are going to light up, and that's using electrical power as well. Absolutely. So I think we wanted to continue on this theme of how important each technology is. I mean, when you look at what we have in, in our world, well, we have MRIs. So suddenly so much of our surgery has to do with, well, we can use an MRI while we're also doing this. We're charting parts of the brain. Once you get this new this new way of, of looking and thinking in these new technologies, often medicine sort of flocks to that area. I mean, nanotechnology is giant, you know, stem cells are, are a new thing. And, you know, we start seeing how oh, everything's going to be stem cells, everything's going to be genetic, you know, engineering, everything's going to be, you know, all the, and these things all happen because it's the new technology and everybody thinks, well, maybe there's an avenue here and there's so many ways to explore it. Well, electricity was the same way. And, you know, it's a heartbreaking way for Bertie's mother to to go. And it's a heartbreaking scene. And, and Anger Honor does an extraordinary job with it. Um, you know, that, that whole moment with Reg Rogers, who plays Chickering Sr., I, I, you know, I think we'd been sort of aiming for that for a while and this detente between these two characters that have kind of been at loggerheads. I was stupid to think I could do it. You must be furious with me. You had the courage to try. I couldn't even look. And to see them sort of in silence and misery together has been, I don't know, I think it, I think it really is a crossroads. And the father and the son are sort of trading places a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, the surgery takes place at Mount Sinai, which is a completely different but equally beautiful surgical room created by our guest today. Our production designer, Howard Cummings. Howard, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. I have, a suge- I have a suggestion for season three. Can you do these podcasts ahead of time? Because I learned a lot just by listening to you. <laughs> so we could start out that way. You could work backwards. We'll do that next yes. year. Yeah, the cheat sheet. Yes. So. so you've worked with Stephen before and as has a lot of our crew, and you're used to his speed and his efficiency. But then he hands you this script and he says, oh, and by the way, we're shooting in, in three months. Did you want to like drop and drop it and run? Did, were you up for the challenge? I mean, how did that, how'd that go down? Yeah, in season one, we basically got the go-ahead uh, to start doing this. And Stephen, we were in, what, June? And Stephen said, let's shoot in August or September. And we needed all of this all at once. So what was that feeling like? Uh, well, it was enhanced by the fact that I was supposed to start a job the very next day, another movie, and <laughs> that I hadn't quite got hired on but was just about to get hired on. <laughs> and I was supposed to uh, actually go to, uh, I think, Venezuela. It was like a – and uh, S- Stephen just sent me an email and he said – 
dude, you're going to pass up 1900 New York? And I just, I said, I guess not. And so I, I, uh, I um, stepped away from the sure thing and then latched on to, to the idea of this because uh, it just intrigued me so much. And, you know, it's not something you get comes your way every day. So f- for a designer, it's awesome. But then, of course, the flip, flip side was exactly what you said. There's no time to get it done. So, so, what's, um, so what's the process? I mean, you sit there and you go, I know what the inside is going to look like. But how does that translate? I mean, what are the steps between between Howard Cummings having this flash of, I know what the show is, and then one day we are all walking in it and saying, okay, everyone settle, let's, let's shoot. Yeah. Did you, did you start with, did you say, okay, I got to figure out the theater Oh, I, I know what the ward looks like. I mean, wh- which which was like the next big thing? Well, even before even before I went out and like did the scouting with Rob, the first person I met with was the researcher. You know, because all those things, like I, mm-hmm. I didn't know what an operating theater, you know, really looked like, and you know, I'm certainly no, I was no expert on, you know, 1900. Although I'd done a couple of projects set in the 1900, so it wasn't totally unfamiliar uh, to me. So I hired Coco, who you guys know, who's was our great researcher and started like hitting her up for information. And then, you know, we, I had Stan, you know, Stanley, Dr. Burns, you know, who I could also talk to and started calling research as much as I could. And, and, and uh, one of the great things that Coco found for me was um, Presbyterian hospital, uh, which was up on the Upper East side at the, at the time had complete records that they kept. They did an annual report and they had photographs of all the operating theaters, the wards, all the rooms and ground plans, ground plans. And even like what was interesting was like, I could figure out the heating systems. They had a forced air, hot, hot air heating system. And it had, hmm. and you know how uh, if you look at the outside of the high school or the outside of the Nick, there's a big tower on the corner. Right. And uh, I was trying to figure out what the heck that tower was. It's a vent for the hot air system. So I learned a whole lot from that, and I could I, the how they spaced out the, the in these reports with these ground plans. I could see how far apart they spaced the beds, and then we modeled like they had the photographs. We copied those beds, you know, you know, to the best that I could. I didn't, you know, I had to base it off of photographs and stuff. So, so one of the things that uh, our audience doesn't know is that you can walk from honestly the surgical theater all the way through past all the. Doctor's offices, past the lobby, past Barrow's office, all the way through into the pathology lab, into the morgue, into all these other sections of our quote-unquote hospital, and never see a detail that isn't period correct. You would assume you were in 1900. Did you know that you wanted to have literally a space that would be contiguous? Or was that just something that was fortuitous? You know, no, anybody who builds like sets for television would never do that because it's just – it makes it also incredibly hard to make because it's everything's double-sided. And so, you know, when I – I don't know. In season one, I had like 13 d- people drawing and they were all drawing different parts of the hospital, but they were all integrated. So like getting them all – you know, and they were drawing as fast as they could and trying to coordinate – 
each body, every, how they all intersected was quite difficult. So people generally avoid that. And, you know, I didn't quite realize what Stephen's shooting style was going to be, although I knew it was going to be handheld. And so the great advantage of having one continuous set is that he could move through it. And like in season two, it's just unbelievable. He just took that to another level. I mean, we, we started, right. I started suddenly I had to rip out all the door jams in the set because he was moving right. through so many rooms and then connecting scenes in hallways that weren't really were written next to each other, but he visually connected them. So he just took it to another level. So, you know, in the end, thank God it worked out that way. But I would have people come visit and they would come and they'd stand in the set and they'd go, so how did this building get inside this warehouse? Or did they build the <laughs> warehouse around the building? And I go, no, it's not a building. Um, so we also, you know, you don't just build sets. You also basically when we go on location – the exterior of the Nick or wherever we go or even if we go into um, a location set, you're also doing the same thing in there. How much time do you get to stand inside maybe some location where you can go, okay, I know what this room looks like. Now I'm going to redo and you know change this window, fake this, put a light behind that, redo the floors. How, how, how does that work for you? Uh, well, I mean it depends uh... – I mean, you know, none of us get much time. You guys don't even get much time. You have to work really fast, especially in season two. There's a ton of locations. Uh, I almost killed you guys when I read the script. And I read it in the summer and we were working. (laughs) I was working with Steven on Magic Mike XXL and uh, and Greg Jacobs. And I I think it was a Sunday night and I sat down to read the script and I was in bed. And I like read the first page and a half and I just put it down. I went and the next day I went to <laughs> I went to Greg Jacobs and I said, "Have you read this? I mean seriously, have you read this?" But there were such great, I you know, fun things to do like you're talking about uh, episode 6 and Heber Palace was like, you know, that was an awesome task and it was like that I that was another thing that came right into my head. I knew exactly what I wanted. And so I had I told Rob, I said, "I I want to a Victorian old warehouse. And I said, I can just, I want something with a really long thing. I want to set it up like an arcade. I just had a visual like layout for it, which, you know, the actual dime museums were set up a little more like museums and more in a building like that. But I wanted a long arcade. And uh, Stephen, you know, in episode, what is it, three, took full advantage of that with that giant shot that he did all the way down and back right. through the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Perhaps I'll bribe you. To do what? Oh. <laughs> I'll think of something. But you liked the article. Oh, I love the article. Mm. But I, I don't want people thinking all medicine is like that. Psychiatry is a very new field and things always look worse at the beginning. Not all things. No, not all things. <laughs> it was such a fun set to do, though, that, you know, I had such a great crew. They just, like, really didn't say no to me. They kept saying, okay, bring it on. I was just shocked, you know, and because... Uh, now, did you, did, did you, like, when you designed that set specifically, did you say, okay, we know we have to have Zoya and Nika, the twins, but I think we should have a, a knife thrower, we need a fire eater, or is that something that sort of 
fell into place later? It, it, it well, uh, well, we had to find a balance too because we also had other. We had a chamber of horrors. We had wax figures. Right. We had because we're we were trying to make something that wasn't strictly just a, you know a sideshow event. And you had the hypnotist in there, which was great. So, so that mm-hmm. uh, when when I read that and you had the hypnotist, I said, oh great, then I can have a uh, you know I knew that I wanted the, that to be at the very end on a big stage and put up this whole proscenium and. Then we had illustrations of all of them all. Like, and it was, so I remember, like, because right. we had, you know, the twins I knew, but we wanted banners and stuff that all, you know, about their acts. And so I had a lot of portraiture in there. And what the craziest thing is that I had to draw the hypnotist before the hypnotist showed up. And I couldn't believe how much his. The thing, oh my the portrait, god, really? portrait I already <laughs> made. I said, "It's my god! It's the guy! It's like somebody read my head or something." Because there it was, you yeah, know. That's we, crazy. Yeah. So that I mean, was like exactly that was like for two to completely like. I can't imagine. You know, he wasn't that crazy about me mentioning that. He said how much he looked like his because <laughs> it wasn't the it was kind <laughs> of an insane portrait of him. You know, kind of like Oz like. I said I just knew I wanted it to look like the Wizard of Oz. You know, like that guy's face. So, uh, so that was super fun. You also work with Regina Graves, and I want to sort of because you guys were incredible, and you won your you won the Emmy for our show. So I want to discuss how you work with Regina, who's a set decorator. It's it's a real partnership. I mean, I you know the whole look of the thing hinges on Regina, and especially in season two, where at all these locations, we did the initial shopping, some initial shopping together. Like we would walk through places and we'd both move toward the same piece of furniture and go, this is, you know, Cornelia's desk or something, you know, or whatever it was. Like, don't you think this says Algernon? And what I love working about with Regina is that she makes choices based on character. Was there ever a moment where, you know, you you and Regina go in, you you say, okay, this is what tells the story. You design the space and then Stephen walks in and says – no, this is this is not the way I wanted it, and we need to shift it because I'm going to shoot it this way. Or, or did he kind of just with with each location was he okay with it? He, you know, what's great. Uh, uh, the the answer is that happens very rarely. Thank God, <laughs> especially given mm-hmm. the time frame that we're working under. But like, I don't know if you knew this, but like when we were building. And, and it's just this is the way Stephen is. He did not walk into the operating theater until the day we shot it, you know. And that's a huge set. I mean, I had illustrations, yeah. you know, that he signed off on, but he he was walking by it every day. He wouldn't walk in. He will not walk into it. But no, for him, he wants to be inspired by it. He wants to like walk in and he like, you know, and we have, we do have a little bit of a shorthand, but it does mean that I have to know what the scene's about. So I better put things in the right place and I better, you know, you know, and I, I have ideas in my head about like some of the staging or what I would hope the staging would be based on what I think the story is. And so, um, you know, in Birdie's first experience with the, you know, um, with the prostitute, yeah, the hired girl. Okay. And I, for me, it was like, I already knew I said, okay, I want two rooms and I want one of them to be 
I want one of these. There's these crazy crocheted things called port crochets, and um, they're these woven kind of things. And it was kind of like, I don't know, it just there was something about it that it told me that like he's going to be standing there and she's going to be on the other side of it, and he's it's this kind of thing. That room is also, by the way, Algernon's. Becomes Algernon's, it's Algernon's apartment, apartment later, as well. Yeah, you know? <laughs> so like, we do repurpose so we, a fair number of things on the show, but we're being fiscally responsible with our uh, with our funds. Oh uh, yeah, I'm, well, I I love the fact that um, Lucy's boarding house in season one was also Junia's brothel bedroom. <laughs> you know, and right. like two days later, it would go from this very sweet kind of uh, 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 reserved boarding house to this kind of over the top crazy, you know, house of ill repute. You know, wasn't it also the Diggs Hotel? Oh yeah, Algernon's it was place? the Diggs Hotel as well. <laughs> and people freak out when I tell them that the you know that Algernon's clinic was also the opium den. You know, so and you know, and right. the rat stomping, and yeah. and the rat stomping. <laughs> yes. Howard, you know, I mean, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, your past. And, you know, it's funny. You, uh, One of the things our audience doesn't know is that I would say Howard is easily the hardest working human being any of us have ever met. Will show up no matter how early to a, to a set and Howard will be moving garbage cans around and changing things and climbing walls and, and fretting over something. But what's so interesting is how hard you are on yourself. You and I were watching, uh, I think, the first two episodes of season two together a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week ago, and I watched your face sometimes, and I could see you still redoing the scene in your head as how, oh, if only I had $2,500 more, I could have done this or changed that. Your history is interesting. How did you go from, you know, college student frat boy, um, Howard Cummings, to um, the guy we see today who's, who, who is this incredible artist? I stumbled into it. Um, uh, I was, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't, tell, I was supposed to be in pre-med. So, so I was sort of, <laughs> that's sort of helpful in talking to doctors on, on the Nick, that's for sure. And uh, <laughs> um, I think I got into organic chemistry, but, and I, I and my heart wasn't really in it, but I and I sat there and I was listening to the I was listening to this professor and I went, he could be speaking Japanese and I probably would understand him better than I. Am. So I knew I had made a big mistake, <laughs> and so um, and I stumbled into theater arts. I actually went into English first, but it was way, it was before spell check and. Uh, I have the spelling of a fifth grader, and um, and Jack, I have somewhat dyslexic, you know, which you'll you'll appreciate. Yes, I I'm I'm the leader of the dyslexic club. Yes, and then so I ended up falling into the theater program, and I was uh, assigned a um, you know set design class, and I'd never drawn anything, and I drew something. I I did Moon for the Misbegotten, which was you know Eugene O'Neill play, and I did this thing and my professor submitted it and I won some award <laughs> and it was my first drawing and they said okay this is what you were going to do so thank god those people like the, the those professors like said we know what you're going to do i wasn't ready but uh so that's how i sort of fell into it and and, and they were right and so uh and i started on the journey and didn't you start on did you do music videos did you i, I thought i had a conversation where you said you worked on like some bruce videos oh i did a bunch of bruce springsteen videos yeah uh, well that's back in the day when i had hair down like i had bon jovi hair and it was kind of went down to the middle of my back and you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I, uh, you know, that was a while. But I was, uh, that was, uh, you know, thank God for the, the 90s. I had fun in the 90s. So, <laughs> so. Howard, I've spent time with you. You've, you had fun, you've had fun in 2014. But um, I wanted to thank you, Howard. I want to thank you for everything, your friendship, your, your awesomeness, your hard work, and everything you bring because you won, you won our first Emmy and you deserved it more than I could possibly imagine. We write this thing and we have a vision in our head and what you did is so beyond what I think we could ever dream up. So we, we owe you so much gratitude. And for taking time out of your busy schedule, because we know how hard you work, to come and sit with us and talk to us today. It really means a lot to well, us. Well, I was happy to because, you know, I just love the project. And if you guys hadn't written all that stuff, I never would have been able to visualize that world. And, um, and you know, I think it's a testament also to the both of you and the strength of the writing because it's in the page. It, I can tell you it's in there. And like when I read it, it just pops in my head. So, and that doesn't always happen when I read every script, but on your scripts, it, it just sort of, I just, I kind of could see it all right away. And, and I think that's a testament to good writing. So thank you. Well, thank you. Well, thanks. The Nick podcast was produced by Barry Finkel with production help from Emily Rubin. Make sure to check out next week's episode entitled Williams and Walker, this Friday at 10 p.m. only on Cinemax. And then join us on the podcast when we will be talking to an essential person to Soderbergh's vision. That's Dolly Grip Mike Marini. Hey, if you like what you hear, let us know. Give us a review in iTunes. Share the word on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where you can find more great content under At The Nick. Tell your friends, family, create fan art for the Nick Tumblr page. Instagram pictures of you acting out your favorite surgeries. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. Thanks for listening.